You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The transition between sleep and wakefulness can be a precarious time. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Alan Hobson. Dr. Hobson received his MD from Harvard Medical School, where he's currently professor of psychiatry and director of the Laboratory of Neurophysiology at Massachusetts Mental Health Center. Welcome. Nice to be with you. Dr. Hobson, you've made a career out of studying sleep and dreams, and and I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this science is the transition between wake and sleep. Can you please tell us about this? It's the transition that is probably going on all the time. I mean, you're, you're mostly awake now and just only slightly asleep. And when you're asleep in your bed tonight, you'll be mostly asleep, but not entirely asleep. So there probably is a continuum. It looks like the edges between them relatively sharp when you look at the way that scientists represent sleep and waking. But in fact, there are probably lots of blurred edges, as any person knows who, who pays attention to their own fluctuations of their own states. I mean, you're lucky if you're fully awake during the time that's assigned to people to be awake. But in all likelihood, there's quite a bit of fluctuation. And the dynamics of the system are such, brain systems that support sleep and wake are such as to make that quite understandable. You've got to get the whole brain in the, in the same mode in order to be fully awake. You've got to get the whole brain in the same mode in order to be fully asleep. And with 100 billion neurons to manage, it's not surprising that some of them get out of the box from time to time, and you have unwanted episodes of sleep during waking, as in narcolepsy. You have unwanted periods of waking during sleep, as in insomnia, which all of us notice too well. Narcolepsy is a relatively rare disease, but insomnia is very common, and it's so common, I think, is to make it questionable whether it should be called a disease. I mean, insomnia is something that, you know, not being able to sleep is something that is probably erroneously packed into the medical model right now. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Alan Hobson. We are discussing abnormalities of the sleep-wake transition. What about hypnagogic hallucinations? What exactly are these? The hallucinations of dreams generally occur after sleep has been in place for some minutes, maybe 45 to 90 minutes, in fact. But in hypnagogic hallucinations, you have the dreaming at sleep onset, and you may have the hallucinations occurring in waking. And that's very disconcerting if you've got a crocodile under your bed and you you see it flipping its tail around. It's very unpleasant, and uh, lots of our patients have that kind of experience. They close their eyes, and they start to drift off to sleep. All of a sudden, there's a hallucinatory experience triggered in their brains, but projected into their bedrooms because they're still partially awake. So hypnagogic hallucinations are hallucinations occurring at sleep onset, and they are really a function of the abnormal triggering of the dream process at sleep onset. Normally, it's held back in time, and so you don't notice it so much. You might wake up unable to move, for instance. That's an example of a hypnopompic phenomenon. Hypnopompic just simply means waking up with the phenomenon. Hypnopompic hallucinations also occur. So you can wake up from sleep and 
be hallucinating in your bedroom as a function of an inability to shut down the previously activated brain processes that underlie dreaming. Edge problems are easily understandable. They're quite unwelcome. They're not surprisingly relatively common. Most people have waked up from frightening chase dreams, unable to move, and this just reflects the persistence of the atonia, the muscle atonia, muscle inhibition that is normally part and parcel of REM sleep. Are these people psychotic? By definition, they're psychotic, and they think they've got some other form of mental illness. They think they've got schizophrenia or something like that, so they don't tell anybody about it till they hear me on a talk show. And they call up and they say, oh, gee, do you think maybe I have? Of course, maybe they do, you know. The fact of the matter is that one of the things that we're trying to do is to naturalize psychosis. Dreaming is a psychosis. You have hallucinations, you have delusions, cognitive difficulties, you have memory loss. You've got all the major formal features of psychosis in normal dreaming. We call it normal dreaming, but by definition, it is psychosis. So psychosis is normal. And psychosis is not normal in waking, we call it mental illness. The capacity to do these things, unfortunately, is is universal. We've all got it, in a sense. We've all got psychotic brains. We've got brains that can be psychotic just by the most surprisingly insignificant changes in neuromodulatory activity are enough to make this stuff start happening during waking. How can we treat these people that have hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations? Well, the first thing to do is to talk to them sensibly and talk to them understandably and explain to them what's going on. I mean, I think there's nothing like having words for problems that you can't understand. Having words that make sense and making it naturalistic and physiological as against something otherworldly and strange is already a big step. Fortunately, there are lots of drugs available to help us keep REM sleep in sleep and not in waking, and we've talked about some of them. They're, They're all problematic, but we've got them. There are ways to uh, manage these disorders. We're in a very strong position, I think, then, to, first of all, explain to the patient what's going on so that they're not so terrified, and uh, second, to uh, begin to play with this system in a respectful way and try to get it to behave properly. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Alan Hobson. We are discussing abnormalities of the sleep-wake transition. Dr. Hobson, you've talked about out-of-body experiences in many of your books. How does this fit in? I don't have out-of-body experiences, so I can't talk about it with quite the degree of confidence that I do about dreaming. It's not surprising, I think, that Lots of other things occur at transitions between normal wake and sleep. Out-of-body experiences is essentially a third-person dream. I never dream in the third person. I always dream in the first person. But when I ask for a show of hands at a lecture of people, a third of the people already see themselves as a third person in their dreams. So they're already out of body in a sense. In a sense, they're seeing themselves walking around. Who Who is... Seeing what? I mean, you know, here's this image of you walking around inside your brain or inside your mind. What's going on? Obviously, uh, out-of-body experiences, not as unusual as we think. Now, out-of-body experiences, in a, in a more sort of literal and concrete way, 
include, uh, you know, seeing yourself float up to the ceiling and then going back into your body again. Uh, I mean, I think I think all of those things are not too hard to imagine when you realize what a job it is to formulate the notion of a self that is always embedded in the body. When it obviously the the whole notion of the self is a fabrication. I mean, it's there's no such thing. It's just a process. We both know who we are. We know our histories. Actually, we think of ourselves as psychic entities. We don't think of ourselves as brains with self-awareness. We think of ourselves as psychic entities, and that's one of the one of the biggest problems of solving the mind-body problem because people are so convinced that they are, you know, sort of independent psychic entities, and that that allows them to have such comforting thoughts as life after death. And it is true that it's all spiritual, and you know, but the brain is just has to be the the way in which all of this is done, and we're just beginning to understand it. I can't help but think about alien abduction as I hear you speak. Alien abduction is the kind of thing that if you have a dream that you've been taken to outer space, it, it occurs in your bedroom, and your husband is is lying beside you, and uh, he doesn't notice that you're gone. So are you gone, or, are, or is this just something that's happening in your so-called mind? I mean... I think it's very likely it is the latter, and then alien abduction is just one of a number of sorts of fantasies that get played out in normal dreaming. Alien abduction is a, is just another natural phenomenon that fits with a lot of superstitious material. We've never really seen a flying saucer. We've never really seen the little green men, but uh, most people, I think, are willing to believe that it's quite possible that such things happen. One and one has just landed in my garden, and you know this guy is beckoning to me, and I go aboard. The thing that's so amazing about this is that, you know, people like John Mack, who's unfortunately deceased, he believed that these patients were telling him of phenomena that should be recognized to be facts, and there's just no evidence for it. And I think the evidence is strong that it's perfectly possible to have such experiences without leaving your bed without leaving sleep for instance dreaming is a many splendored thing and you can manipulate it if you want to have a out-of-body experience you probably can have one if you want to be abducted by aliens you probably can be you know swedenborg who formed one of the vigorous branches of protestantism did that by meeting angels in his dreams and they instructed him to create the church of the new jerusalem and so he, he wanted to meet the angels and he wasn't having any luck. He thought he'd see God at the end of the microscope. God never appeared. So he indulged in sleep deprivation. And when he was having rebound REM, he was, you know, able to dream whatever he wanted to dream. And he, he dreamt about the angels coming to see him and giving him all the instructions for religion. And, you know, Stevenson did the same thing in his, in his books. I mean, he, he, he didn't know how to deal with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He had the idea of it, but he just got the dream brownies to work on it for him. And you know, they reported to him how to do the text. The point of all of this is that rather than looking at this as sort of uh, abnormal and sick stuff, this is the brain at its auto-creative best. The brain is auto-creative, and that is a, that's a surprise. I mean, people who think that brains are, you know, just like cameras or projectors or computers are out of their mind. And the thing is, it's incredible. It can produce solutions to plot problems. It produces all this wonderful imagery that's ascribed to being abducted by aliens. It's capable of producing out-of-body experiences 
it is fantastic to have a brain. And we ought to realize that we're very lucky to be creatures who have them. So if I dream about aliens tonight, I'm calling you tomorrow. Well, you know, it's, it's your dream. And <laughs> if you want to dream about aliens, you just incubate. Just I'm going to sleep now. I think I'll, I'll see if I can have a dream about aliens. <laughs> and it's your responsibility. Now, if you do, let me know, would you? I will. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hobson. We have been discussing state boundary blurrings as it relates to sleep, waking, and alien abduction. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.